like to just take a little bit of time and, and share with you some more thoughts about this subject of love and righteousness that we've been sharing on from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, talked about the passion for righteousness, the, the, uh, the principle that's involved in that of love and then the pursuit of that righteousness. Uh, and we were dealing with that in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. He says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. We dealt with that and talked about this righteousness as being a, um, connected to the kingdom of God. You can't have God's righteousness apart from his kingdom. Now, I, I, I said this to you and I wanted to, I wanted to uh, repeat this. It's been a little while since we talked about it. And uh, I, I really appreciate the spirit of the Lord helping us Sunday morning. And uh, I really, <laughs> I really want to see us get more from the preaching <laughs> and the teaching. So uh, uh, I will tell a little bit on my daughter, bless her heart, so precious to me. And so Sunday afternoon I was, uh, maybe it wasn't Sunday afternoon, I think it was Monday or so. Maybe the Tuesday, I've, I've lost track of time, forgive me. Anyway, so I was just asking some and she said, I didn't have my notebook, <laughs> and I didn't take notes, so she had a few things swirling around in her head, and, and, uh, and I was asking her certain things, and uh, I'm telling you that if you don't make an effort to focus, if you don't make a concentrated mental effort to remember a sermon, you won't. Now, there are sometimes points that will just come out that will just hit you so broadside that they're unforgettable uh, and they make such an immediate impression upon your life uh, and upon your your spirit that that you don't forget them uh, but I think an out of an hour sermon we ought to get more than one point we ought to get something more than that to help us so I challenge this church to that and uh, <clears throat> she said I will have my notebook next time I'm in church <laughs> amen so I, I wanted to uh, uh, exhort you to that and as we study this I, I, I said that to say that I don't think it hurts me repeating this because I have found out that you can ask a question 30 minutes after a message and folks won't remember what you said and so it's been probably two and a half weeks so I doubt if you some of you may or may not remember but when we talk about the kingdom of God we talk about the kingdom of God in its present aspect and its future aspect. There's a dual aspect of the kingdom of God. There's the present expression of God's kingdom, and then there's the future expression of God's kingdom. The present expression of God's kingdom is seen in the church. The church is the visible expression presently of the rule of God. Now there is a broader sense in which that God does rule, but in reality only the church recognizes it. God, of course, is sovereign, over all the earth. He's a king. The Bible says he's a great king over all of the earth. And so God uh, still sets up kings and puts them down. He still uh, causes nations to rise and he judges nations and he reveals his wrath against them. <clears throat> but it's the church that becomes the declarer of that. We are the ones that proclaim to the world the government of God. But where is it visible that God governs? When you see God moving in the nations, it's really either just to bless or to judge. He blesses or judge, judges. They have a responsibility to follow his word, uh, but there's no sense in which they often 
uh, are looking to him and that that is the expression of God's kingdom. No, uh, Christ right now is directly ruling and in his church. He is the head of the church. He is our head. We are the body of Jesus Christ. Peter will mention that we are a peculiar people. We're a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We are a nation. The church is a nation. The church is a special people. The church is a kingdom of priests. The church is a generation that has been chosen out by God. And so that we are here to reveal to this world the kingdom of God, what it is to live under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Our lives, our lives should demonstrate and express the blessings, the benefits of the kingdom. We talked about that coming in his power. We talked about that coming in his presence. Amen. And we, we talked about how the, the kingdom of God is seen in his power and it is seen in his presence among us as he dwells in and among us. And so and we, we, we see that also in his precepts, how the, the word of God, so that the church applies and lives by the precepts of God. The church enjoys the presence of God. And the church is here to demonstrate the power of God in this world that all takes place in the church he looked at Peter and said I give unto you and and and, and him being at that moment simply uh, uh, and, and probably spoken to all the disciples I give unto you the keys of the kingdom the keys of the kingdom the church becomes the present expression of the kingdom of God and so that Christ is ruling over us we demonstrate that rule. We illustrate that rule. There's peace in our life where Christ reigns. We live in his righteousness. And the church is the present expression of the kingdom of God. But we are awaiting a more fuller expression of the kingdom of God. The more fuller expression of the kingdom of God will come when Christ returns unto this earth. When he returns unto this earth at the end of tribulation, now he comes to rule visibly. He has been ruling over the nations, but not as they're sitting as judge and, and men still doing their thing and, and working and many in rebellion against him. But when he comes back to the earth, he subjugates every nation. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confesses. Every nation now is brought under the direct leadership of Jesus Christ. He will rule visibly and his knowledge will fill the earth. His kingdom, the Bible says, is a kingdom of righteousness. It's a kingdom of righteousness. It will endure forever. There will never be another replacement. There will never be a time after the millennium so that Christ will become invisible again that he'll go off somewhere. He will rule visibly upon the earth forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And righteousness is going to fill the earth from sea to sea. The glory of God. He talked about the righteous which shine as the sun. Holiness up unto the Lord will be written on the pots and on the pans. Down to the very products that are made. They will be devoted unto God and dedicated unto Him. I'm, and I'm telling you, if God puts holiness on it, buddy, you can know something. It's a good piece of work. 
All right, it isn't a shoddy piece of craftsmanship. It is going to be a good piece of work. There's going to be, again, honor in every product that's produced. No cheap junk in the kingdom of God. No, no bunch of trinkets and mess. Things are, the entire economy is going to reflect the righteous rule and the righteous reign of the king. And that will be the full expression. In that full expression, the wolf and the lamb will play together. In the full expression, the bear will eat grass with the ox. In the full expression, the children can play in the streets. It's reading G. Campbell Morgan. He preached a message about this out of Zechariah, I believe it was, but it mentions about the children playing in the streets and how he talked about today, if you think about it, how if the children can play in the streets, then the streets must be made safe for children. Today, our streets are not safe for children. There are predators there are murderers, there are abusers, but not only that, how about things that they could see? Things that are made visible to them. How about things that they could hear? Things that children could hear that would pervert their innocence and destroy them. Think about that in the millennial reign, the very streets themselves, <laughs> glory to God, there'll be no picture that a child cannot look at. There'll be no word spoken that a child could not hear. There will be no predator that a child would need fear. You won't have to teach your children, don't talk to strangers. You won't have to teach you wouldn't have to teach your children that hey you know don't 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 uh, be careful so that you don't go up to people that you do not know there will be absolutely no fear in the kingdom of God and that will be the full expression but that in on the church I will tell you, in the church, a child should have no fear. In the church, a child should be able to play among us right here and fear no word spoken that would ever harm their innocence. Fear no picture that they would see would ever harm their innocence. They should never fear the touch of any man. They should never fear the touch of any woman because in the church of Jesus Christ, righteousness should reign in our hearts and our lives. And there should never be any sense of danger for a child. Where a child can live, there's righteousness. There's no danger of falling. And so, that's the future expression that's coming. Now, he said, seek the kingdom and his righteousness. These two things are, are mentioned together because they are not independent of the other. If you're going to seek to advance the kingdom, you must seek his righteousness because that's how it advances. The king rules in righteousness. Grace reigns. In Romans chapter 5, he will tell us that grace reigns through righteousness in our life. That wherever righteousness is in, uh, wherever God's righteousness is, that's where God is reigning. That's where God is ruling. In other words, you're not going to be right unless Christ is ruling in your life. So you seek his kingdom. You cry for his kingdom. You cry for his will to be done. And that will bring his righteousness to you. But you cannot cry. There are many people who want the blessings of his kingdom without the morality of his kingdom. They'd like to have his peace. They'd like to have his protection. They'd like to have his healing. They would like to have his power. They would like to have that gentle touch. But they don't want the morality. They don't want the submission to the king. It's impossible. You can't have one without the other. If you're unwilling to bow to the scepter, you shall not experience and receive the blessings that come from it. Now, how do we seek this kingdom? And I want to show you this. We'll look at this familiar prayer again. In Matthew 6, he says, he talks about down in verse, verse 9. He says, 
and he gives this prayer because he's spoken about seeking the kingdom and giving us a prayer. And now we should do this prayer becomes central. It, it is mentioned several times by Christ even throughout this, this sermon. And he mentions about, there are three things I want to talk about in this prayer that illustrate uh, the, the seeking for righteousness as a part of the kingdom. Seeking the kingdom and righteousness. And there's, first of all, that this prayer has, has three aspects of it. It is first a petition for God's government. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, I've already shared about that. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is sanctified, honored, glorified, be your name. Thy kingdom come. We are praying. That's what we ever want. I, that's when I shared with you the kingdom is seen in his power, his presence, and his precepts. And we preached about that. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And we'll look at the second part now. And this is a cry for God's grace. And he's going to deal with, um, let's see, about three things here, I think. Three or four things that he's going to deal with. Uh, and I want us to take note of them here tonight. Because every one of them is an expression or a, a petition for the grace of God. And remember, as I've just shared with you in Romans chapter 5, grace reigns in righteousness. Wherever men want to live right, wherever men are devoted to the right, wherever men give themselves and yield their members to righteousness, you can say that grace is reigning. If men are not living right, they're not subject to grace. But wherever men are under grace, wherever men are depending on grace, wherever men are receiving grace, they're living right. It's a contradiction of God's word to say you're under grace and live in sin. Grace doesn't reign in sin. It reigns in righteousness. He, that's the very thing that he says in Titus 2. The grace of God to bring us salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So wherever grace is reigning, righteousness is there. Now watch these petitions and how each of them have to deal with righteousness. There is the first one. He says, give us this day our daily bread. That is, give us day by day our daily bread. Now, <clears throat> I think there's a dual aspect to this. You can get guys who seem to fall on both sides of the fence and, and most want to indicate that, that this is talking about our, our, our temporal sustenance, if you will, uh, and, and our, our bread that comes to us from heaven. And uh, I'm sorry, the bread, the physical bread, rather, that we eat, um, that he is talking about our food that we must have. Well... And that may be included in there. But I do not believe that to be the chief aim of Christ in this petition. And I'm going to give you two reasons why. Because the first reason I will say to you is a little bit later in this chapter. He will tell us to not fret over these things. Uh, he will tell us, you know, we can ask for them. You ask and he'll give you bread. But he tells us to seek first his kingdom. And these things, the meat, the bread, the life more than raiment, the no, it's more than meat, uh, he says, these things will be added unto us. So I don't think that it would be a principal part of the petition that we are people who are always necessarily crying for bread, and we need God to provide us bread, but that's not so much. That is oftentimes provided... Whether or not sometimes we have time to ask for it. We give thanks over the bread we have. But bread has been mentioned in Matthew prior to this back in chapter um, 
3, 4, I think it is. But he mentions about when Christ is tempted in the wilderness. Christ makes a statement. The, the devil tries to get him to turn the stone into bread. And Jesus doesn't turn the stone into bread because it's not what the Father says. Now that takes divine power. And Jesus can't uh, use his divine power. If he uses his divine power, he can turn that stone into bread. But he is not here to so much express his deity. He is here being tested as man. He's not under a test of his divinity in the wilderness. He's there under a test of his manhood. Is he going to be a faithful man? Is he going to be true to the commands of God? And, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone. If you're in a fast, you're not even eating daily bread. But if you're in a fast, there is a bread you do need every day. And it's the bread of God's word. It's the living bread that comes down from heaven. That bread I need every day. I don't have to have physical bread every day. Now, I'm not telling you that that's not an inclusive thing or that that's not something that can be an aspect of this prayer. Certainly, if there's a need of bread, we ask Father and Father will supply that need. But he tells us later in this passage that our first priority is not to seek for bread. Our first priority is not to seek for clothing. Our first priority is not to seek for shelter. Our first priority is the kingdom. So I don't think he's going to make seeking for bread a principal part of this prayer when he tells us a little later on that our, our, the main thing we should seek is the kingdom of God. This prayer is about the kingdom. It's not about a loaf of bread. Jesus, remember, and later on he'll tell them, I think it's in this gospel, but later on he will, um, they will get in a ship and he will say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And they're, oh boy, he's upset with us because we didn't bring bread. He said, come on, fellas. I'm not talking about bread. Didn't you remember how many? See, Jesus wants us to know that's not a problem. He'll give the bread. He'll supply the physical bread. But I will tell you right now, if you're not seeking the spiritual bread, what goods are going to do you to get the physical bread? The bread that we need day by day is Jesus Christ. He is the bread. He said, I'm the living bread that comes down from heaven. I'm going to tell you the bread that you can't live without is that spiritual meat and that spiritual drink that you've got to have on a daily basis. I can go a week uh, or whatever if we need to without food. You can go for a while without that. Eventually, yeah, you've got to have it, and God provides it, and I'm not telling you that there's not times. We certainly may need to uh, ask for that, but I will tell you, I don't think that's what he's making a principal thing here. Even in the wilderness, he gave them bread um, to eat in the wilderness. He gave them manna. They didn't have to ask for manna every day. They didn't have to go out in the morning and say God sent man and when they got up it's there they just go out and gather it. But he says, I was trying to test you. I wanted to prove you. I wanted to show you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He said, I wanted to show what was in your heart. I wanted to humble you. And I, I, I suffered you to hunger. And I fed you with manna. I wanted you to see life is not about physical bread. It's about spiritual bread. It's not about for them. They're caught up in how are we going to make it in a wilderness? They thought that there is sin you need was water and bread, physical water and physical bread. And God wants to teach them, your essential need is me. Right. 
I'm what you need. You've got to put your faith in me because if your faith is not in me, I'm going to tell you you can have all the water you want and all the bread you want to eat and it will do you no good. He talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said they drank of that rock that followed them, that rock that was a spiritual rock. They drank the water of that, but guess what? They failed. They failed because they didn't get the thing that was essential. And that's the bread that feeds the soul. So there is this crying out for the righteousness of the kingdom. Lord, give us that bread. Give us that essential. Bread is, is meat. Bread is something that symbolizes essential nourishment. Lord, give me the essential nourishment that I need in my soul. When you read God's word, do you pray as you read, God, talk to me today. Speak to me from the word today. You know, you've read, our danger is we read over a familiar passage. We've read it so many times, we just kind of skim through it. Hey, I read it again today. And nothing new came off the pages to you. You should pray. You should stop. You should say, God, feed me today. Do you know you need God to talk to you every day? You need the Bible to talk to you every day. Even if you're not able, somehow something's happened, you're not able to read it. You ought to have enough in it you could quote it and say, God, talk to me today from your word. Now, here's a verse, Lord. Talk to me. Lord, give me something. Speak something into me. That's what we live by. That's what we live by. God, direct me. I need to know that your hand is there. I need the bread. That's my nourishment. We come to church sometimes and we're so starved uh, because we haven't been feeding every day. We get what we get when we come to church and we hear the word of God but between Sunday and Wednesday we're on a fast you need bread Monday you need bread Tuesday you need bread Wednesday and we give you enough to share and teach so that you can say God feed me from that message let me eat on that meat let me Lord be able to feast on the word that was given unto me on Sunday until I get to Wednesday and I will take that and apply it into my heart this book has got to become a living reality in your life it can't just be a Sunday school textbook give us day by day our daily bread and then he says forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors now, this passage is quite interesting. He doesn't say sins, although that's what he is talking about. It is this one phrase that, is, that the petition is contingent, and the petitioner knows it. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's not, Lord, give us bread as we give others bread. But it is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the one part of the petition that becomes a contingent. And it is so important. And I think it must have, it must have maybe caused the eyes of the apostles to expand a little bit. Because he actually, when he finishes the prayer, gives an explanatory note. In verse 14 and 15, he reemphasizes this part of the prayer. He doesn't reemphasize any other portion of the prayer. But this verse 12 is repeated and, and re-emphasized in verse 14 and 15. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive men, not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I don't think they were used to praying this way. Forgive me my debts as you, we forgive our debtors. And Jesus has to repeat it. Say, now listen, if you don't, God will not forgive you. If you don't forgive your debts. Now, two things that here 
a couple of things I want to bring out. Number one, he does use the word debt. Sin is seen here. We obviously know he's talking about a sin. There's something wrong here. If something has to be forgiven, there's an offense. There's an infraction. A sin's being committed. But he calls it a debt. A debt is something you owe. A debt is something where there was an obligation and you didn't fulfill it. There was some obligation and you came up short. And then there are folks that were obligated to do you something and they came up short. Now this may, oftentimes we often think about things like this in terms of money. When we hear debt, we think money. But there's so much more that's owed than money. How about respect? How about gratitude? Amen? How about love? How about gifts and abilities that God gives us we owe to share and to have, uh, help others? Amen? There are so much. How about prayers that are owed? Yes. We can go to Father for people. We owe it to go to Father for people. We owe men our gratitude. We owe them our respect. We owe them our, our courtesy. We owe them our kindness. We owe them our love. We owe them the gospel. Paul says, I'm in debtor to preach the gospel to you. We have a debt to preach the gospel. wonder how many times we might have to ask God to forgive us, Lord, of the debt because we did not, Lord, preach the gospel to somebody that needed to preach, hear the word of the Lord. So, but in relation to righteousness, I want to keep this in sync. The bread, this is that bread that feeds into our heart that is that word of God's grace, which is the word of his righteousness. He calls it the word of his righteousness. God's word is right. And then there's this prayer for forgiveness that says, Lord, forgive me. And that, of course, is concerned about our constant communion with God and our constant communion with our brothers. And it indicates that, again, the vertical cannot be separated from the horizontal. That we cannot expect God to forgive us of our sin unless we are willing to do the same to those around us. It's that simple. It's that simple. Much has been said about forgiveness. Much could be said about forgiveness. Um, I, I think about this. I've spent... A lot of times, sometimes just thinking about it, how that, that we must be ever ready to extend to others the grace that God has given to us. That's really what it's all about. The idea is in this, sometimes we get so focused on forgiving others. If you really would take a look at what God has done for you, it should be an automatic thing for that to flow out to others. We get stuck on, on not being able to forgive others because we have simply not considered what God has done for us. We have failed to look deeply and say how deeply we have hurt the heart of God, how many times we have went against the heart of God, and God has forgiven us. Now, there, there is, of course, a danger here in, the, in our world today because in the Christian world, this has been so emphasized and it's been so misunderstood. There's much talking about forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. Matter of fact, the whole gospel seems to hinge on forgiveness. And that that seems to be the essence of it. But our viewpoint today about forgiveness is a sense that 
It's forgiveness without any sense of the cost. Without any sense of the price. Forgiveness today has become cheap because it doesn't have any moral basis. It doesn't have any, any sense about why can I forgive you? How can I forgive you? On what basis can I forgive you? And it's just that today it's almost do whatever you want to do and boom, forgiveness is expected. Go pick it up. And what it does is the kind of forgiveness that's being given out today actually encourages sin rather than discourage sin. This prayer of forgive me as I forgive those my debts is a prayer from a man who doesn't want to have problems, who is not living in habitual sin, but he realizes there are some times, there are some things that he has, he has made some, some obligations that he hasn't fulfilled and he recognizes because he has had to do that to others. He has had to forgive others who were unable to forgive or fulfill their obligations and he's had the same thing to God and he said, God, I need you basically to flow through me. Your forgiveness to flow through me. So it's not cheap. We can't forgive men if Christ doesn't forgive us. There has to be a price that's paid. We don't have the love to forgive men if Christ doesn't give it to us. We don't make, we don't make tr transgressions something cheap and something trifling. Oh, he did it no bad. We all sin. Oh, it's no big deal. We just forgive. That's a wrong attitude. That's a wrong attitude. Forgiveness must never make light of the sin. Forgiveness does not eliminate the consequences. Forgiveness is this simply necessary to restore communion. And communion can be restored, but the sin must not be made light of. You must remember Christ paid a high price to purchase your forgiveness. It cost him much pain. It cost him much suffering. And had he not shed that blood, you could not be forgiven. Absolutely essential. And we cannot reach out to forgive others unless we have received the forgiveness of God Almighty. And this idea today of making forgiveness something cheap is that we just all forgive means we have become lax about sin. Then he talks about lead me not into temptation or lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Notice again the request. Give. Forgive. Lead. Deliver. These are, the, these are the primary words. Give your bread. Forgive the debts. Lead. Deliver. These speak to our essential where you and I are at. Give because we are needy and dependent. Forgive because we have sinned. Lead. Because we need a shepherd. Deliver because we need a savior. We need a sustainer. Give me bread. We need one who can be a sacrifice. Forgive. We need one who will be a shepherd and lead. We need one who will be a savior and deliver. This is the essence of our life. You cannot live without a sustainer. You cannot live without sacrifice. You cannot live without a shepherd. You cannot live without a savior. In your world, you need constant meat and sustenance. In your world, you are going to offend. And you need a means by which you can be reconciled unto this God with whom you must walk. 
And thirdly, you need a constant guide because you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what's around the next corner. You need a shepherd. We are sheep. Sheep are such creatures that without a shepherd, without men, sheep cannot survive. I think that's interesting because evolution has animals before men. How did we ever get sheep? Because sheep cannot survive without men. That's an impossibility. If they don't have a caretaker, if they don't have a human caretaker, they can't survive. Their wool will grow so heavy, they'll just, they'll just get overloaded, get down, and they'll die. They can't make it. They have to be led. They'll overgraze. They have to be led. They have to be constantly sheared. Their, their wool has to be cut. Uh, so they are absolutely can only survive if they have a shepherd. And then a deliverer. There's danger in our world. Deliver us from evil. Now, some people get a little confused. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some people seem to think, well, why would you have to ask God to lead us? Don't lead me into temptation. You're missing the point. It's, it, this, this kind of talk is all through. The psalm I read tonight. What was the psalm I read tonight? Somebody's listening. Oops, I'm in the wrong book here. Psalm 28. I just read it in this psalm. Listen to him in verse 3. Draw me not away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity. When the psalmist is saying, lead me not into temptation, he is not saying to God, now God, I know sometimes you lead into temptation. I don't want you to do that here. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, in my world, there are temptations. And I need you to lead me or I'm going to fall. I need a shepherd. I need a guide. Now, temptation, temptations, and I think that the idea of temptation here is, is the idea of, of uh, a temptation to sin. That coming right up on the heels of forgive. This guy is not interested in living in sin. There has to come the time, yes, you must ask forgive. But the immediate cry that follows that is, Lord, I don't want to fall into temptation. I don't want to fall into the hands of the evil one. I want to be delivered. I want to live right. I need a savior. I need a shepherd to guide me. And all of this you see ties together with the righteousness of God. I need his word within me. I need restoration it comes. I need him to be the guide so that I can avoid the traps of that the tempter has laid for me. And then I just simply need his power because the wicked one, sometimes he can come and get me by temptations. Other time he comes just by overwhelming me. Right. And it's not a snare. It's not a trap. It's just overwhelming me with his presence. And I need power to be delivered from his hand. We, we, we wrestle, and when we talk about the, the devil, we wrestle against his ways in, in different ways. We wrestle against his wiles. That's leading me not in the temptation. But then we wrestle against principalities and powers. That's deliver me from its power, Lord. So there's the snares of the devil, 
and then there's the sheer uh, uh, power of the enemy that comes to overwhelm you, that comes to browbeat you, that comes to, to push you down, to depress you, and, and to overcome you, and you need the power that delivers from that. Now, all of this, again, ties in with the kingdom and with righteousness, and you can summarize all of these four things in one word, grace. I need the word of his grace. I need the restoration and the forgiveness of his grace. I need that grace that keeps me out of the tempter snare. I need that grace that gives me power over all the powers of the enemy. That power that he wrought in Christ when he raised him above uh, and set him at the right hand of God above all principality and power. All of that is the demonstration of God's grace in our life. And that's what we're praying for. And that's what seeking the kingdom is. It is to live under the power of God's grace so that his word of grace is in you. His grace restores and redeems you. His grace is leading you and teaching you on a daily basis and you're living under the power of that grace where the enemy cannot touch you and his power cannot get you because that grace is lifting you up and empowering and giving you strength on a daily basis that is the cry for the kingdom and righteousness grace reigns in righteousness and all of these things are concerned with righteousness and I could go through them again and again but they are concerned about righteousness the word of his righteousness the forgiveness that restores the righteousness the leading in temp from, from temptation and delivered from the evil that keeps one in righteousness and then he concludes for thine is the kingdom the power and the glory now the last word is the part that this, this deals with is God's glory but I want, I want you to see something here. This gives to us the kingdom, the power, and the glory. This gives to us as well the three divisions of the prayer. I divided it in three. I divided this prayer in three parts. God's government, God's grace, God's glory. God's government, God's grace, God's glory. He expresses that in similar terminologies. For thine is the kingdom, that's God's government. For thine is the power, that's God's grace. And thine is the glory, God's glory. But what is that? What does that mean? Why is he saying that? Consider this for a moment. I'll, I'll, I'll close with this point. Consider here for a moment. Consider this prayer. The church is the one that has been given access to God. And this God has all power in the universe. All power. And the church is going to the one in heaven and saying, Father, bring your kingdom. Let your will be done in earth as it's in, done in heaven. Now, wait a minute. Do you realize the power and the potential of that prayer? That the church, through its prayer, can move nations, families, situations changed. Because the church touches heaven and heaven comes down and works in the earth. Now, I, I want you to think about this clearly. 
That's really powerful. What right do we have to ask this king to come down and do his will upon this earth? What right does the church have? Help me, Lord, to put this into words. Consider if this power was given to another agency, another association, an organization. Consider if this power was given. And you're over here and you're not part of that organization, but you can be affected by their prayer. You might be saying, saying what right have you got to pray? What right have you got to go and ask him to come down and do his will in this earth? We live in this earth. He tells us. He ends up this prayer and tells us why we can pray this. Why can we ask God to bring his kingdom? Why can we ask God to do his will upon this earth? Why can we ask God to move nations? Why can we ask God to move families? Why can we ask God to save people? Why can we ask God to reach down and heal? Why can we ask God to intervene? Why can we ask God to do things that are going to affect the lives of others? Because it's his. Because he owns it. Glory to the Lamb of God. Just because Tom Jones over there don't want to acknowledge that God is the owner of America, that's his problem. But we understand we can pray for God's will to be done in America because God owns America. God owns China. God owns Russia. And I can ask God's will to be done in Russia because God owns it. They don't recognize the kingdom is his. They don't recognize that God has rule and sovereignty in the world, but the church knows that God has a right to intervene in anywhere he wants to intervene because he is a sovereign God. And we cry out for his kingdom to come. We cry out for his will to be done because it's his kingdom. Why do we ask God to give us bread? Why don't we ask the government to give us bread? Why is it that we ask God to forgive? Why is it that we ask God to deliver us from the devil? Why is it that we ask God to help us, to show us how and avoid the temptation and the snare? Because his is the power. We don't go to a pope and ask. We don't go to a brother and ask. We don't go to a preacher and ask. We don't go to a priest on the earth. We go to God Almighty because he has the power. The power belongs to him. The grace is his to give. And thereby we can pray this prayer and have this righteousness because God's grace is there to bring it. The reason you pray to God is because He's the only one that's got it. He owns it. And he's the only one that's got the power to deliver you from the powers of darkness and to keep you out of temptation. And then here's this finally the glory. The end of that prayer is, is that where God reigns, men live right. And where men live right, God is glorified. And that is the ultimate thing that we are seeking for. The finality of the whole thing in seeking his righteousness and his kingdom is that God may get glory. Are you really content to stand in the shadows and let God be out front and be glorified? Would you be happy 
if you go out and you do the work and you become the vessel and then you fade into the limelight while men lift their hands to praise God. Are you happy with that? You should be happy with that. You better be happy with that because that's what we seek. Oh, glory to God. Oh, no, Brother Woods, I think I should be acknowledged. Okay, fine. We'll just all worship you. Can you give us daily bread? Can you forgive us of our debts? Can you keep me from the power of the devil? Woo, glory to God. Can you keep me from falling into temptation? Oh, would the earth be benefited if your will was done on earth? No, 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 no. I will worship him who is worthy of worship and let it be that all thoughts and hearts and minds would be directed unto the God who is to be glorified. Give him glory. Hallelujah. Remind yourself when you have done something. If you have done something and it has produced a good result and, and someone has been blessed, you've preached a message, you delivered a meal, you, you, you spoke a word, you, you helped a neighbor, you gave a gift, you did something that blessed somebody and they thanked you up one side and down the other. They, they sang your praises among the neighbors. When that moment comes, remind yourself, if God had not first given to you, you would have nothing right in that moment, in that time speak to yourself and say you are nothing I have only done my duty let glory and praise and honor be to God Mm. we've got to become a people who are so secure in the character and the nature of God knowing that this let me, let me just say something here. The reality is, there's another side to this. I cannot, there is a sense with me that God has put in me, there's a sense of self-preservation that God has put in me. That's natural. No man ever yet hated his own self. If the the ball is coming towards your head, you duck. There is innate within us, if someone attacks us, we defend ourselves. If lightning bolts are coming from heaven, we run. We try to find something to get under. There is a natural tendency to preserve ourself. There's there's no way to get around that. That's, That's not bad. God has placed that in there. Let me say this to you. If giving glory to God meant my personal annihilation so that there would be no future, there would be no benefit of that. then number one, God would not be good. Because if God receives your glory and then annihilates you, he's not good. Ultimately, in other words, when I give God the glory and I put him first where he deserves to be and I'm back here, 
There must be a confidence in the character and the nature of God that understands and knows fully that number one, God is good. And if I put him first, he will not abandon me. And putting him first is best because he deserves first, because he's the wisest, because he's the greatest, because he's the holiest. And I do not do that selfishly. I do that unselfishly. And yet somewhere inherent within this, I have to be secure. I have to have a sense of security that I can put God and, and glorify him and exalt him and lift him up. But at the same time, I know this. He will not leave me without. But I trust that wherever he puts me and whatever he does with me will be good. You see, our problem is, is that we are not willing to trust God to put us or where God puts us. We don't like where he puts us. And we don't trust that's, our, that's the best place for us. So we exalt ourselves. We exert ourselves. And we say, God, I want to be over here. I want to do it this way. I want to do it that way. And God says, no, you're going to go here. You're going to do it this way. You're going to sit over here. You're going to play third spot. And you're not going to get in first base. You're going to play left field. I don't like that, God. I don't want to be in the first. You got to be content that if God puts you in left field, that's where you can best glorify him. And God will never let you die in left field. <laughs> He'll keep you. There's a message I, burning in my heart. I want to preach somewhere down the road. It ties this some together. It's called security. Faith is that which brings to us security. I've never seen in the Christian world today people who claim to know Christ and they're so insecure in their persons. You want to know why we have really makeup and jewelry and, and the flaunt in the flesh? One word, insecurity. Insecurity comes out of a lack of acceptance of who God has made me and that I, I am content with what I look like as God has made me. And that I don't have to change that or modify it or put it out there to let someone else see it and press the world it's about security you have got to be able to be content that if you're at the end of the line God is with you and he's got your best interest at heart and he will take care of you that is God's glory this whole prayer and seeking his kingdom God says put me first all through the Bible, you have Elijah, he comes to a widow. I'm just going to make my last meal here. Fix my little bit of oil, my little bit of a meal. I'm going to prepare this last little bit. And my son and I were going to die. He says, fix it for me first. Put me first. Put God first. He wasn't God, but he, that's what I was doing. He was someone who was coming to say, God has got a command for you. Trust him. She put her entire life security in that man's hands who was a man of God. And he says, and you know the end of the story. Amen. Let us therefore seek in our prayers God's government, God's grace, and God's glory. Ask God at the end of your prayer or think about it at the end of your prayer. Is your prayer going to exalt you or God? 
Is your prayer going to lift you up or is it going to lift God up? Is your prayer going to make your name greater or is it going to make God's name greater? We're after His kingdom. We're after His righteousness. And it begins, it begins with our prayer life.